0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm joined today by my guest, Maurice Wilson, who will be talking to us about his chapter in the new book, Learning from the Lived Experience of Graduate Student Writers. Welcome to the show, Maurice.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am really glad that you're here. I love your chapter in this book. Before we delve into that, though, I wonder if you would please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, let's see, where should I start? There's so much to me when I think about like these different facets that make me me. Uh, let me. Let me see if I can try from this approach of like breaking down these different categories of myself. So in terms of my academic work, a little about that. I'm very interested in the study and research of student veterans and military members in academic settings, so quite a bit of my interest is toward that. I've also done some research and I'm very much interested in the work of people of color in writing, conditions in academic settings, so particularly in HBCUs and other minority-serving institutions. So I'm really interested in that as well um, for reasons I can get into later. Um, I am a, a retired military member. Um, I was a pilot, and I love all things aviation. I don't get to fly as much anymore, <laughs> but I'm uh, still very much in love with it and I can talk about it far, far too much ad nauseum. So I'll try not to do too much of that. Um, family man, um, a wife, and at home right now are my three boys uh, with us. And we like to get out and do a lot. So um, that's a bit about me. Um, if there's anything else I can think of or you'd like to know, please feel free to ask.
1: Okay, I will. Um, you grew up in Chicago, going to public schools. Can you tell us a little bit about your own path through academia? How did you How did you choose your college? What was that path like?
0: Oh wow! Um, so yes, uh, uh, born and raised in Chicago, grew up there in the public school setting, and so the the choice to college. Um, Let's see. So the my choice for the particular college I went to was an HBCU in Florida um, was kind of random. At the time, I was active duty military stationed at um, a, a base in Alabama. And so I was looking for schools that were convenient to that area at the time where I was with my family, uh, my then wife, um, who got uh, since we've split up and, um, and I'm remarried. But uh, at that time, I was married to my first wife and we were stationed there. Um, and I wanted to go to school close by. I uh, competed for and was awarded a ROTC, what's called a Green to Gold uh, Military Scholarship. And, um, and that was really cool. So I didn't want to be far from the family. So it was a matter of just what's convenient, what's close. I looked at schools in Alabama and a few close there in the panhandle of Florida that's um, ultimately settled on the HBCU after a visit during homecoming. And I mean, homecoming at an HBCU, I, I was hooked. You can ask anybody who's ever been to one. Homecoming is the time to be there if you're going to be there. And that's when I visited and I was hooked. So um, they had a really great program um, for ROTC and um, there was also great programs in uh, for academics, got to know and meet some of the instructors, and I felt really at home. I like the idea of an academic setting where the student population looked a lot like me. After five years of being in the Army, I loved to travel and being and being able to go around and meet different people, but not since I've been home in Chicago had I been in a community like this. It wasn't just being around other Black voices and faces like my own but other like-minded Black voices and faces. In other words, those who are interested in the pursuit of higher education and those for whom like the kind of conversations I can have were very different than the ones I'd had growing up back home, where we're talking about things like survival and poverty and drugs and gangs back home and how to navigate those conditions. In college settings, we're talking about social as like how we can bring about change to those sort of social conditions and activism and politics and things i never thought about or really didn't give much thought to before college so it was really great and that's kind of how i ended up at that particular uh school and the choice to go to an hbcu there uh, close by the base where i was stationed
1: were you already a pilot at that point
0: Oh, no, no. I was enlisted. I had enlisted in the, uh, the military. Uh, and that was not by choice. I was um, about a year out of high school and not doing much. Um, and my mom, who has served in the military, she was more reserve and guards. She was never active. But she started to worry that a year out of high school, I wasn't doing very much. I wanted to go to college, but we just didn't have the money for it. And I knew so little about financial aid and how to apply for scholarships or even if those opportunities were available for folks to go. I mean, I just think about, like, the things I know today, if I knew then, I could really have charted a very different path for myself. But that ignorance plagued me then. Um, No one in my family had been to college before in a sort of traditional way right out of high school. And um I would be the first. So at that time, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have the sort of guys to help steer me or guide me um, in the direction I wanted to go. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew then I wanted to be a pilot. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. So I'm just kind of working, like almost like wishing something would happen, a solution would present itself, like the answer would kind of just emerge from the heavens, I guess. I don't know. And then one day out of frustration or out of fear or concern for me. Um, Just kind of being there in Chicago, not doing much. My mom came home with a colleague who was a recruiter and um, I came home from work to find my mom and this gentleman in uniform on the couch. And she called me in and she pretty much just gave me an old tomato. Um, um, I'm laughing at it now was not very fun for me at the time. And it was like a a, a riff in a relationship with my mom at that point because she was forcing me to do something at the time I didn't really want to. Um, but yeah, she gave me an ultimatum to join the military and leave her house or just leave her house. <laughs> so I uh, spoke with the recruiter about, uh, potential job options and, uh, let him know what my interests were that I did want to fly, um, that I have a love for that or was least interested in that. And, and so, yeah, to be a pilot at, at least, you know, on at the very basis sense of that, you need to have a college degree. Uh, to be a commissioned officer usually requires a degree. To be a pilot usually requires that kind of something similar if you're going to be commissioned and do that. As a warrant officer, which I didn't know much about, I probably could have taken a different path without college, even out of high school, but I didn't The recruit and share much of that information. So I ended up enlisting in a job that was closely linked to aviation. So I was an air traffic controller for five years. It was a lot of fun. I got to work closely with pilots and get to work closely with aircraft and learn a lot about those and stationed in a couple of places where I saw those work in various ways and uh, sort of set the stage for what steps I would take next. And it did lead to ultimately, you know, replying for that scholarship, earning it, going to college, and then later coming back into the Army after college as an officer in aviation. So it worked out very well. But, yeah, a series of steps. It didn't start off quite that way.
1: Was your undergraduate degree in English?
0: It was, it, it was. So I've always known, I, I, I've i always loved reading. I was a huge fan of, of literature and I loved reading stories. And growing up in the neighborhood where I lived or the, the neighborhoods I, where I lived with my brothers and my mom, and at certain points, my, my aunt and her two daughters, so my cousins also lived with us, Like. Uh, uh, it was just my mom and, and then my aunt raising the five of us. Uh, later, the six when my mom would when my little brother would come along when I was in high school. Um, it was kind of tough. So we didn't have a lot and you know in the, in the urban area in this community where I grew up, that was very close to like the housing projects. Um, my mom didn't always feel comfortable letting us like go outside and play. And so I was left with my imagination and books. So there was a local library nearby. I spent a lot of time there reading and just falling in love with these stories that would become like ways of escaping what was happening around me. Uh, And then that love of reading led to uh, writing. My twin brother and I would kind of compete. We'd write these stories and we'd compare them and share them. And I always felt like my twin brother was uh, a stronger writer than I, although I was better performer in school, academically than he, particularly in writing classes and English classes, but he's like just sort of this competition for writing that would prompt us. And so we wrote stories about things we always could see ourselves doing or imagine ourselves wanting to do. And that just led to sort of this love of writing, although I didn't write very well. There were other things connected to that too as well. Two, I would often take trips to the airport um, uh, to watch planes come and go. And I think the first time I ever saw an airplane was when my mom joined the military. And we had to see her off to her initial training. I must have been, I don't know, seven or eight, maybe. Yeah, that seems about right. First or second grade. And watching that plane go, I was hooked. Um, And so I would come home and I'd write about those trips to the airport following that when I'd go again. Come home, write more stories about them. I was enamored with everything that flew, birds, planes, um, you name it. Superman. Oh, my goodness. If it flew, I loved it, and I would write about it and imagine myself doing that and writing it. So between reading and writing, I just fell in love with that. And then about the time I was 13 or 14, um, the Chicago Public School uh, system, the city would have like this sort of program over the summer where you could tutor. Younger students in academics, and I would, I would do that. I did that for a couple of summers in Chicago, and I love that. I, I just fell in love with um, the sort of teaching aspect, or that aspect of that reward of watching students learn, and my contribution to helping them learn, especially when they ask questions about concepts in reading that they didn't understand, or putting some grammatical concept. Uh, in perspective that they had trouble with with their own writing and I just fell in love with that and it just so seeing these black and brown young faces like myself struggle and seeing myself help them with that struggle and overcome it watching light bulbs come on for these young kids just sparked something in me I think I've I've always known I wanted to do those two things fly and teach whether it was literature or writing or both I just they, I've always known that, both those things. And so I feel incredibly, incredibly fortunate that the course of my life, I've been able to do both those things. And in the Army, too, by the way, in the military. Um, so, yeah, that's been super cool.
1: So you got your your English degree. Did you do undergraduate um, tutoring and teaching while you were an undergrad?
0: I did, yes. Yeah. So my freshman uh, first year writing instructor, when I got to college, was also one of the only, was one of two black men in the English department. So I gravitated to him when I had to pick an advisor. Uh, we could pick our own as long as they were in the department because I knew I wanted to be an English major. So I, I asked him and I reached out to him after my first semester in his class. He was very, he was also a military veteran. Um, and I just kind of saw myself in him. Uh, this guy teaching colleges at, cl- at, at classes who was once in the military, um, it drew me to him. And so I talked with him and we got to know each other. And he would often, and uh, these uh, began in these informal ways, allowing me to uh, watch him grade papers and talk to me about how he designed lessons and the choices he made and why he pick certain lessons over others as well as navigating like what the department would have you teach uh and under so coming to understand like the sort of politics or requirements of state curriculums or institutional rules and aligning that to like how the army works sometimes uh and understanding like there's some things you can do and then here's some things you you must do uh, so it was really cool um there was a writing lab there so uh Not quite a writing center, more like a tutoring lab. It felt very much like the work I did in the Chicago Public School systems when I worked with young students there those summers, helping other students with their writing uh, and their reading. So, yes, I did do those things a bit informally and then started to take them on a bit more, uh, offering time in the writing lab as much as I could to work with other students. I just loved doing it. So, yeah, I did do that as an undergraduate.
1: I have to ask, was homecoming every year as a student as thrilling as when you went as a prospective student?
0: (laughs) It sure was. uh, To a fault. Like, I look forward to it. I maybe engrossed a bit too much. Like, you know, it it got to the point where you want to front load your work so that you can kind of slack off a bit during that week of homecoming because the events... Feel that entire week, the anticipation leading up to that week, that week, the concerts, the, the the game, the the halftime show, the parade. I didn't want to just be a spectator; I wanted to be involved in it all. So, I did join uh, a a couple of organizations that would give me like closer access to that. These were great. I never joined like a fraternity or anything like that, other than I guess you can call the military ROTC its own fraternity, but. Uh, none of those sort of Greek organizations, but I did join, uh, the first organization was escorting the um, queens of the university, I guess they, uh, you know, these these, uh, representatives that were one for each class and they needed male escorts to kind of walk around with them and we would travel with them to the different football games and uh, out away games, as you will, And, and with each of those we would be required to attend recruiting events where the best and brightest like Black young high school students perspective, interested in college would come to these events and would then interact with us and we would be these faces that would draw them to our university. I love that because the chance to now have conversation with prospective students about the benefits of college and the interest in aligning that to this particular college, to be sure, was fun to do. And so I continue to do that job in a less, uh, a more formal capacity, not as an escort, but uh, this group called the Ambassadors, where that was our sole sort of responsibility—to be these sort of faces uh, at external events to draw other high school students and community college students to our university. So I loved it, but yes, homecoming was. Uh, It was a blast. It was a blast. I kept it in a comfortable balance, though. Didn't go too crazy with it. You know, Uh, like some students can kind of get lost in it. I will say I I, I didn't have too much fun, but I had enough. I had enough. But being an older student coming to college, uh, non-traditional, I served about five years in the Army before I went to college um, as, as an undergraduate. So I'd kind of gotten a lot of that out of my system that tends to plague uh, younger, more traditional students who go to college and have way more fun than they should. (laughs) Uh, I'd already gotten some of that out of the way. So I wasn't too caught up. Um, And then of course, being a family man with those kinds of responsibilities, I had to keep things in proper perspective when people are counting on you for their livelihoods, uh, dancing around homecoming and letting your grades slip as a result is not really an option.
1: So were you a parent when you were an undergrad?
0: I was. Um, yes, yes. I, I my, my older child, uh, so my daughter was born at that time. And so at the time I went to college, um, my first wife and I were already headed for Blitzville, unfortunately. He was very young when I got married. And when we had her, and then my son would come along as uh, right in my first year of college, second year of college. So, um, yeah, I was a parent uh, really trying to juggle the demands of providing while also staying focused on grades in school um, and transitioning to a culture that I knew very little about, having spent five years in the Army reading and writing very different types of text, um, speaking a very different type of discourse, And then prior to that, a product of the Chicago public school system, which, you know, didn't adequately prepare me for either of these discourses. Um, so a little out of my depth and juggling probably, you know, without bl- blaming or faulting anybody. These were all my choices. I did bite off maybe a bit more than I can chew, but I didn't shy away from that. So i do my best to try to provide and maintain some semblance of family structure, keep my grades in check. And meet the responsibilities of the rotc because it had its own obligations and demands uh, to be successful in that if i were going to complete it and return to the military as a commissioned officer it was it was um yes i was a parent and quite demanding
1: and you did return as a commissioned officer
0: i did yes i i uh, graduated commissioned and assessed aviation very very again just Everything just happened for me just as I kind of envisioned it for my life and um, yeah, I was able to graduate. I had to spend a few months still on campus waiting to start my flight training, but returned to the very base where I was just before I went to college because where all these that's the home of Army Aviation and where all the flight training happens. So super cool I had to spend be, you know, with my daughter and son and uh, return to flight training and be there for about a year and a half learning to fly helicopters and going through that training before I would take my first assignment uh, in Korea. Uh, But yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: And so how long uh, before you went to grad school?
0: It would be 2007 before I would return to Chicago and start grad school. I was leaving Afghanistan. That would be my first time in Afghanistan. So yeah, so let's see, what's that, about seven or eight years from the time I graduated undergrad to grad school? So yeah, uh, 2007, I returned to Chicago for grad school and yeah, about a week two weeks after leaving Afghanistan, I was starting the first day of class. So if the transition to undergraduate work was challenging, oh boy, add to that uh, the transition from a combat tour, from active duty military and not being in academic settings for the better part of seven, close to eight years with uh, a family. And oh boy, <laughs> Let me tell you, it was was interesting. Not an experience I'd soon want to repeat, although uh, very rewarding ultimately for me.
1: And so the program that you're starting in Chicago just weeks after returning from Afghanistan, this is a master's degree program?
0: It is. It was, yes.
1: And It it was a very different learning model than what you had just gone through to become a helicopter pilot. And it was also very different than how... Your professors had created a learning culture as an undergrad. You're in yet another completely different learning environment.
0: Yes, absolutely. So all of these sort of environments, um, you know, over the years, I guess in retrospect, looking back at it, I can can better see where um, you might transfer certain skills and abilities across the borders of different cultures, but uh, at that time, that was lost to me so yes learning and the hbcu environment very uh supportive environments in the english department there is a major the time i spent learning um my skill and craft as a leader of soldiers as a pilot in the army and mastering those tasks taking command uh being in and out of various countries and in different context um is a different set of skills itself and very little that you know um, worked this way, at least in my mind, worked for me well in the masters in the master's program. So, a master's of arts and uh, English literature, uh, as you can imagine, again, very different types of reading, very different um, levels of reading than what I would have done, um, even as an undergraduate uh, studying literature as an undergraduate. This was very different. The kinds of conversations and the way the discourse and discussions occurred i was woefully unprepared uh, for those demands
1: and it affected how you felt about yourself
0: uh, to be sure um i often felt that i was i was in the wrong place i that i didn't belong um and that was not a new feeling um, when i first joined the army you know uh, i didn't often feel like I'm in a, a place where I belong. An air traffic controller, I mean, I I picked that job pick because it, it was around pilots and airplanes, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I'm surrounded by a lot of voices that don't look like mine, and so I have to compete and keep up and know what I'm talking about, at the very least, look like I know what I'm talking about and uh, until I can learn this, until I can master this. And that's what I did, and I became quite good at it. Um, as an undergraduate, that felt very natural. Reading stories and talking about stories, yeah, a bit more complex than the ones I grew up reading in Chicago. But, you know, I had some practice with that. And again, instructors are very supportive for the most part, very encouraging, and they asked you just as many questions and made you feel okay to ask questions uh, and fill in some of those gaps of understanding But in the military, very different. You know, I was one of just a few black faces and black voices um, as a pilot and a leader. Um, So that sense of feeling out of place didn't start, or wouldn't. My first time experiencing that wasn't in a master's program. I'd had that before, but this was different. At least in the military, there are you know regulations and guidelines and standards, and in order to be successful at at Task A, you must accomplish these subordinate tasks and be able to demonstrate these things. And you can read that, you can digest that, you can talk to other peers in other areas and uh, try to figure that out. And you can practice some of these skills. They're almost they're very pragmatic, things you can do. Um, the academic demands of graduate work at the master's level, it's a little less tangible than military training sometimes. Uh, very few regulations that govern how to have meaningful and intellectual conversations and a discourse on literary theory or something to that effect. There's no practical set of, you know, information I can read to help me know, well, what's the minimum standard here? What are the requirements? What, what determines success? Um, and who can I talk to, you know, in order to learn and discover that? And then this is all happening in real time. The others around me are speaking what almost felt like a second language, like they're speaking a language I didn't often understand using words that I've heard before. And I would have spent most of my time learning this language uh, rather than using this language. Does that make sense?
1: It does. You've made beautiful sense out of that feeling that grad students have where they're Wondering where the heck they just ended up.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And it certainly didn't help that, um, you know, one of the first encounters I had with feedback on a written assignment, or at least in that first semester of graduate school, the feedback was very frank, um, very direct, and very clear. That, um, you know, the way I interpreted it at the time was... You don't belong, but the way it read, in, in no uncertain terms, it was it's as if you have no idea what graduate writing is. And I'm yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> Captain Obvious. Uh, you know, like I, I'm not pretending. I never pretended that I did. I just, you know, need help with that. But that's where the conversation ended. I, I, um, perhaps out of fear or uncertainty sense of inadequacy inadequacy, that certainly that imposter syndrome um, did not in in any way help me to feel compelled to talk back with this instructor and maybe seek out, well, where are the weaknesses? How can I address them? Can you help me with that? What would you have me do in order to improve upon that, right, like even the basis of undergraduate uh, encounters or students who are going to come to you and say, at the very least, how often do we hear like freshman students in my first year writing classes tell me what to do? The past is how do I get an A on this paper? So what you want me to say is X, or A Or <laughs> in the writing center where they're asking us, uh, you know, I need to do well on this. Can you tell me what to say? I would never. I mean, I could not do that with uh, with the professors. Nor would I. And then of course you couple that with the experience of being a soldier where. You know, when I was an enlisted person, you know, I didn't carry a great deal of responsibility. You show up and you do your job. I can go into the air traffic control tower, do a fantastic job leading aircraft to take off and land safely and keep the distance and no one crashes or dies. That's a really good day. Um, However, you know, uh, and I was a young soldier. I didn't carry a great deal of responsibility before I went off to college. ROTC, you're kind of learning some of the um, rules and regulations. You're understanding about policy and procedures, but a lot of it tended to be very marching here, learning how to dig a ditch there, set up a tent, going and doing more tactical infantry-based maneuvers where, you know, that in some ways were useful, but not entirely. Uh, But in college... You know, I'm I'm worried about asking a professor or someone to help me out of fear of looking any more ridiculous than I already felt. I would never go to a commanding officer in the military, senior ranking officer, being someone in a position of officership and say, I don't know this or I can't do that because I'm being also this this person's also my superior officer is also my evaluator. He or she is going to evaluate my performance. And part of that performance, the success of that performance, inherently involves confidence, uh, certainty, assurance, decisive um, thinking and decision making. If you lack in that, then you're not a good officer. And so I kind of brought that with me also to grasp through this idea that I almost already know what I'm doing. I must always do it well in order to be successful. In other words, there's no time to teach here. There's no time to teach, and um, after it's certain, you, you've been given this information. You must have mastered it, and now you're, you're kind of all already being tested on it. Kind of one of the issues I have with uh, the university's uh, structure for undergraduate freshmen, uh, particularly underclassmen, is that. Uh, it, it, it often requires students to already know and have master, like we're testing right out of the gate. So I get that feeling because as a master student, I certainly felt that this is something I must already know. So to see a comment like it's as if you don't know what it is. Well, no, I've never done this before. Why? How would I have known what this is? Where in the undergraduate process is there instruction on if you're interested in being a master's student and you're not going to go for seven years because you got to go back to the army first in that remote possibility, here's what some things you should think about. Here's some skills you should have. Here's how to transfer some of what we're doing here to what you may do there. And oh, by the way, it's a certain type of school you may end up going to because schools are not all created equal. Right. Programs are not all the same. You must be a good fit for these programs. So this is all things I'm learning on the fly and over the course of like After my master's experience, I learned uh, much of what I needed to be successful as a master's student after the fact, teaching at the military academy in New York. It's very weird how that worked. Like the light didn't come on. The aha moment didn't come on to me about one of the most important aspects of success in graduate school, engaged dialogue and conversation. Those things I wouldn't even begin to have until I'm in the halls of the English department and the classrooms at the military academy teaching students there and talking with my colleagues and friends between classes or in the office spaces there. Um, it was really, that was a really weird but uh, pleasant experience where that came to be the case for me to kind of discover and learn uh, that when I wasn't alone, others felt similarly to me in some ways, um, maybe not to the extent... Extent and degree that I did, but this idea that you know what you're doing, um, or you don't know what you're doing, wasn't limited to me. Was really refreshing to see after the fact. Um, I wish I'd known more of that then. You know, I'm sitting here now with a book in front of me. Perhaps you've known it, much not much like the book, my my co-author chapters a part of. It's one of a number of texts that. Speak to that. And this one's quite literally, literally titled What We Wished We'd Known, right? Negotiating grad school. I love texts like that one because I look, to I me, mean, that's sort of practical, no nonsense things. But this, this idea that there's a need for these kinds of texts in the first place kind of highlights maybe the shortcomings or, dare I say, failures of what's happening in graduate programs all around. If students are having to find other ways of getting this information, outside of the context of learning and the graduate experience, what does that say about the nature of the graduate experience, right?
1: Exactly, yeah, and that's why we have this channel. That's why we're doing these podcasts because there are these gaps and we have to start naming them and having collective conversations about what we're going to do about them.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely,
1: I love that book you just referenced, and we will um, we will attach it to the copy for listeners so they can add that to their their library to help them navigate grad school. Um, for you, you finished the master's degree, you went on to this job in New York. At some point, you decided you want to get your PhD.
0: Um, you know, not well. Yeah, at some point, that decision was a necessary decision. So after my time at the Military Academy teaching, I returned to an operational unit uh, at Fort Hood, Texas, where I would return to train and return to Afghanistan for another combat tour there. But um, uh, I'd I'd also had to return to, uh, well, this happened before, but I would need to go back to refresher courses because I'm also switching aircraft. I wasn't flying helicopters anymore. I was flying Airplanes and um, and needed to, after having been out of the cockpit for a while, just needed to refresh those. So after a little bit of training and preparation, I would would end up back in Afghanistan for another combat tour, and had promoted. So I mean, I had a higher rank and a higher position of authority. So this uh, feeling of now you are higher up the sort of military food chain. You really need to know what you're talking about. You really need to know what you're doing. And boy, oh boy, was that a challenging tour. Probably one of the most challenging of my personal and professional life because, you know, the position I held in that tour was one of only a few. So at this rank of major, um, and in and, and a typical battalion, there are usually only two. Uh, one who is, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm. I'm going to oversimplify this, and I certainly don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but in a typical Army sort of battalion at that level of operation, you tend to only have two individuals of that rank, um, uh, both of pretty high authority, one's over operations and training, and another tends to be over admin, and as an executive officer, and that would be the position I would hold. Uh, But we were in a really non-traditional sort of setting in Afghanistan. There were a couple of others of our rank. And uh, that already weird dynamic of pitting yourself against your peers uh, in order to gain favor because your commanding officer or your evaluator is limited in a number of highly uh, marked evaluation comments he or she can provide kind of then puts us against each other rather than foster this sense of collaboration. I'd come to love and discover at the military academy where my only competition is myself. How great of a teacher can you be? What's your contribution to the English department? And it's not about I need to metaphorically uh, undermine or undercut my colleagues or peers. Like we're just ourselves. That was one of the most pleasant military and academic experiences. The irony being that the most pleasant experience I've had as an academic and soldier was at the military academy because there my only competition is myself. Then I'd go back to this tactical unit in Afghanistan where the opposite is true. My competition are my peers, those who hold the same rank as I and similar positions. And there are only a few of us. And so we're not really looking to help each other do well. We're not lifting each other up. We're working against each other in some ways. uh, And that was kind of troubling. And so this need this this that sort of pressure to perform well, know what you're doing was even greater. Now, couple that with, I had spent the last five years out of an operational tactical assignment, three years teaching at the military academy, and two years in the masters. So I'm five years away from a field of uh, 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 a field that my peers had spent that same five years growing and, and developing in their skills. So I'm at a huge disadvantage. So much like in the master's course, I'm not going to ask for that help. This is kind of my competitors. And I'm certainly not going to go to the commander and ask him either because he's my evaluator. So you can see that kind of uh, evaluative and that kind of sort of uh, situation where you the, the, the folks who are there to help you are also there to evaluate you really poses a kind of Tension when you think about authority, um, when you think about the way roles of support and mentorship couple with evaluation and authority. And it helps me really appreciate where my students are coming from in both the Writing Center and in my writing classrooms at the various levels I teach. So that was um, super tough. But at the end of that tour, I would return. But before I would return from Afghanistan, I got a call from. Um, my commander at the military academy asked me if I would like to return. And I was like, what? Absolutely. Best assignment I ever had to teach in the English department. The only thing I love doing uh, other than flying. Yes, I would love to do that. Thank you so much. And so in order to do that, I would need to um, join a, a PhD program, complete it and then return to the military academy in an assistant professor role. So I did. I had to apply. I applied while I was in Afghanistan, and uh, was accepted at a couple of schools, including where I am now at the University of Houston. And uh, really, uh, it re- that was that was its own experience, but it it worked out very well. Once I got to uh, here to Houston, uh, ret- excuse me, returned to Fort Hood with my family. We came to Houston. We were stationed here, so I was still on active duty stationed here at Houston. Uh, in the Ph.D. class uh, uh, program doing coursework um, uh, when I returned. And so but there were a couple of missteps there with personal family conditions and a few other things that played into my decision to ultimately uh, not return to the military academy and instead retire from uh, the Army altogether, which is what I did and remained uh, in the role of teaching and working in the writing centers while I completed my PhD.
1: And that's, what you're, that's what you're working on now. You're finishing up the final part of your doctorate. But somewhere along the line, someone invited you to be a contributor to this book, Learning from the Lived Experiences of Graduate Student Writers. Um, how did you become part of um, this anthology?
0: Okay, so in my time here, I've met a few uh, individuals who have been very interested in uh, knowing and understanding more about uh, military members and veterans in academic settings. Uh, as I said, some of my, my research is very much interested in that. So I would given a presentation, I presented a talk at the, uh, I believe it was the SEAS, and another at uh, IWCA, the International Writing Center. Association, I've given some talks. I invited to speak in other writing centers and for uh, in other classroom settings for other colleagues and friends who wanted to bring me in and talk about some of my experiences. Um, and those have led to uh, colleagues who've asked me to maybe collaborate a bit more. And those have been super, super great and enriching opportunities. But this particular one where um, it's like almost six degrees of Kevin Bacon, where a colleague here who uh, I admit and spoke with was doing some research with a friend who said, uh, who had asked if I would, wouldn't mind being a contributor to research toward a book they were writing in another way, and that I would be contacted by another gentleman <laughs> who would reach out to me for an interview. And when that happened, it in the middle of that interview, so now I'm about three individuals removed from the first person who set this up, talking with that individual would end up being that co-author with me, Richard, who, you know, we didn't even realize at the time we're talking, he's asking me questions on a very different topic for a different different purpose altogether. Uh, And as we're bantering, we realize we went to the same uh, undergraduate institution. We're both Black men in academia, you know, uh, it was really weird because we're both using, pardon me for saying this, but, you know, we're, we're, we're code switching. So we're using our most whitest of voices to talk to each other, only to realize we're uh, two black men from the same HBCU in academia with very similar kinds of narratives. And it was he had been invited to this text and asked me to join him and share uh, my story along with his on this project. Now, two of the editors I know, I got to meet and got to know and, and uh, over, over the years in terms of like traveling to conferences and presenting and things of that nature. Uh, but that's how I that's how I ended up um, working with um, with Richard to co-author this chapter. Really cool how that happens.
1: And just for our listeners, because it's always fascinating to know how long a book actually takes. How long was it from when you were first approached one of your first of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon to when the book was in your hands, published and, and ready to be on shelves? How long does that take?
0: So the invitation was 20... 16, let's see, I was living, so I have to do this, by when you're a parent, you use your kids' ages, like if you know how old your kids are, you know where you were when something happened, so let me think, let's see, he was there, so we were there, that would have been if yeah, 2016, if I'm not mistaken, when the invitation, um, we started to, no, I take that back, 2017, we started actively doing, sort of going through the writing and putting drafts together and swapping them back and forth between us shortly thereafter. So like 17 to 18. And of course, the revision process, you know, writing being the recursive thing that it is going through the various hands between he and I, then of course, to our, to the editors of the text. And then of course, to the readers and the uh, the publishers. And so it it went back and forth quite a bit um, before we would finally I think the final text arrived in my mailbox this summer of last year, June or July of last year. Um, so it was it was one of the longest writing endeavors And I've published and co-authored in a couple of articles in the while I was in my coursework during grad school. Um, not as lengthy as this, but was just as lengthy. Those were. Um, um, Took some time and go quite a bit of back and forth as well, but those were closer to a year or two uh, total. While this one was closer to, I guess, four.
1: I think that's really encouraging for listeners to know how how long projects can take and the twisty roads that worthwhile projects take from from your first day at college to the completion of your of your PhD has been a long path. And so where are you now with your PhD?
0: So my chapters are complete. I've submitted them for a second round of revisions and uh, we're scheduled a defense for um, mid-summer here. You know, COVID has set some things back and again, some of those same personal family challenges that plagued, uh, well, I shouldn't say plague, but that impacted my decision to retire also had its impact on my progress um, in the PhD work, um, most notably um, with my wife's dad, uh, who who fell ill there for a moment, and a couple of other situations with one of our children who has special needs, um, and so yeah, that kind of slowed things down a bit, too. Um, and so, but yeah, I'm I'm set now. I'm at a really good point where um, I can defend this summer and uh, join. Join the ranks of others who want to do this kind of great work with the credentials that go along with it.
1: And you're really passionate about that, about using your career now and going forward to really help other students write well. What what do you see as your as your future job?
0: Oh boy. That is a a really great, great question. You know, I I share this story with Those closest to me, like when I was young, I used to have this recurring dream where I could see myself doing the things that I'd spent the better part of the last uh, 30 years or more doing. And at a certain point, couldn't see past that dream anymore. And it used to scare me. I used to think, is that because I don't have a vision for myself? Is it because, oh boy, God forbid I'll be dead, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think just as I got to a, that certain point where I couldn't see past that, I think it was just, I'll continue to do this work in meaningful ways. So I was speaking with uh, one of the writing consultants in the writing center. I'm mentoring her through some of her scholarship at this point, And that question came up and I shared with her that, um, yeah, I, I definitely would love to be in a position that could influence policy change at the institutional level at a university, perhaps a dean, vice president, provost, or something to that effect because policy matters. Uh, But I also worry about being that far removed from working with students. And I, I would miss teaching, I would miss working with students in the classroom and in the writing centers I love doing those. And I, so it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky question because to keep moving up and on, and much like in the Army, and maybe part of me feels that need to do so because of all this sort of enculturation of military uh, training, is that that's the idea move up or move out. And so, and then of course, spending that many years moving about and changing sceneries. My wife and I often talk about like we can't sit still, we, even though we're not in the army anymore, we still feel this need to keep moving around because maybe that part of us is stuck in us. Like we just have to keep moving and keep doing something. So maybe there's that element to it. But that greatest concern for doing that is I don't want to get too far away from the students I pledge to help. I love working with students. I'm very happy where I am right now. I'm an assistant director of a writing center. I oversee and teach all the developmental writing courses at this university. Um, And uh, so for the students, the the, the very kind of students I want to work with, they come in and not always able to meet the on-level first year writing class requirement based on a Texas standard for what that should be. And so they end up in my class at the same time they're taking their first year uh, freshman comp class, and I helped them sort of meet those and understand those requirements and the conventions of genre and things of that nature. I don't want to lose that. I see a lot of students like myself and other students, international voices, and students for whom their first language is in English coming from backgrounds not that different from my own. Without regard for race, economics and, and poverty affects most people the same way. I don't care what color you are, so I used to think I only wanted to help black and brown kids, and now, and that I have long since removed myself from that thinking, and instead I want to help those for whom access is given, but not necessarily prepared for. If a college will let you into their doors, then there ought to be the means by which they help you uh, transition into, enculturate, learn, and master the discourse and the requirements to be successful in those doors. That's not always the case, and I think that's where my sort of point of intervention, I think that's what I'm here to do. So any job that gives me the means by which to do that or to affect that in positive ways, I'm happy to do and would be willing and able to do. But right now, I'm pretty happy where I am.
1: Thank you for sharing all of that. What do you hope this conversation sparks?
0: You know, we're in a moment now where the idea of having conversation is sort of around us all the time, whether it's about social conditions of racial tensions or politics or whatever the case may be. We're surrounded by this. We're in this moment where we're surrounded by this need, the importance, the understanding, the willingness to dialogue about how we can bring change and something that's kind of tough to figure out how to change, but that we can agree needs to change. I would hope that this and the other conversations you you have with others like-minded folks uh, would bring about uh, uh, those who are willing, uh, the the ways they can have the conversation and impact change to encourage uh, individuals transitioning into graduate work. to hang in there and understand that, you know, there are ways we can be successful even if we're not always equipped with that, entering into a certain condition. And I would hope those who are in positions where they can support and motivate and mentor uh, are kind of called to act to do just that. While we can still hold individuals to the standards To the requirements of college or grad school or whatever situation we're in, you know, we can also still teach and support and mentor. Like we should wear numerous hats when we're working with our students, not just the one of evaluator or teacher, but supporter, mentor, coach, dare I say cheerleader, encourager, motivator. We can wear all of those hats um, and be in this position of authority to the benefit of our students, if that's what we're interested in doing. So I hope conversations like this kind of get the attention of those who are in a power and position to do so, and then those who are on the receiving end of that to hang in there, maybe find those resources that are there that kind of teach you to ask the right questions and seek out mentorship and support and meaningful ways to enter into and dialogue and meaningful ways to learn that foreign language of academic discourse and master it. That's what I kind of hope conversations like this one do for others.
1: I hope so too. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Maurice Wilson, very soon to be Dr. Wilson. You've been listening to The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and I hope you will please join us again.